be really informed, you need to know what's behind the national news stories and what's going on in your neighborhood. Consider This, a new podcast from NPR and WNYC, helps you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Robert Coover's story, Going for a Beer, which was published in The New Yorker in 2011. He finds himself sitting in the neighborhood bar, drinking a beer at about the same time that he began to think about going there for one. In fact, he has finished it. Perhaps he'll have a second one, he thinks, as he downs it and asks for a third. The story was chosen by Joshua Ferris, who's the author of three novels, including last year's To Rise Again at a Decent Hour. His own stories have been appearing in the magazine since 2008. Hi, Josh. Hi, Deborah. So Robert Coover is sometimes described as a writer's writer. Why do you think that is? And are you one of the writers he's a writer's writer for? I would say I probably am, yeah. I've been reading Coover since I was in college. My guess is that the formal concerns that he has makes him primarily the reason that people talk about him as a writer's writer. He's not first and foremost concerned with the things that kind of make for a more universal read. Mm-hmm. You know, character is not always topmost. A driving plot is not always topmost. And he can take these formal conceits and push them to their furthest extreme, which makes him, I think, more appealing to somebody who thinks about these things all the time, like myself. (laughs) And he was not really part of a movement, but along with people like Bartholomew and Pynchon, he was someone who really shook up the sort of narrative story form. What do you think was unique to what Coover did? The metafictionalists, they called them, right? The metafictionalists, which really, you know, when I talk to people who are like 20, even 10 years younger than me, I don't hear a lot of people reading them. Like, they don't seem to remember who exactly John Hawks is, which is right, yeah. kind of startling to me. Yeah. When I was in college, Coover's Prick Songs and Descants was widely read. Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of like a Bible for the metafictionists, along with 60 stories and maybe Hawks. It was, you know, we read Travesty and, and a few other things. Mm-hmm. Now, there are significant differences between them, but they all get sort of grouped together. But I think Coover, you can sort of see stretching a lot of boundaries in different ways. I mean, he doesn't eschew realism all the time mm-hmm. in the way that some do. And he's had a longer life than others as well. So you really see a spectrum from him. And you see, especially in these later stories, while they're still concerned with form, they're also concerned deeply with mortality and that kind of the worm that mortality sneaks into these stories mm-hmm. makes them, I think, probably more immediately approachable for a broader audience than some of his earlier work. And that's true of this story, Going for a Beer. What is it about this one that made it memorable for you? First and foremost, just the sheer energy. I mean, it just can't be denied that when you read this piece and you can't stop reading it, it's like an energy that just barrels over you and you can't stop it because it's so immediate and really beautiful. I mean, it's, it's fast, it's fierce, it's unapologetic. It's jumping all over the place and very exciting and unexpected. So there's that, of course. And then you return to it because you can do that within about four minutes and you read it over again and you see, try to break down exactly how he came up with the structure and the flow. 
it must have come to him in a lightning strike, and he just had to pursue the initial spark. Right. You have the sense that it was written in the way that it reads, in just one quick exactly outpouring. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, we'll talk more after the reading. And now here's Joshua Ferris reading Going for a Beer by Robert Coover. Going for a Beer. He finds himself sitting in the neighborhood bar, drinking a beer at about the same time that he began to think about going there for one. In fact, he has finished it. Perhaps he'll have a second one, he thinks, as he downs it and asks for a third. There is a young woman sitting not far from him who is not exactly good-looking, but good-looking enough, and probably good in bed, as indeed she is. Did he finish his beer? Can't remember. What really matters is, did he enjoy his orgasm, or even have one? This he is wondering on his way home through the foggy night streets from the young woman's apartment, which was full of Cupid dolls, the sort one at carnivals, and they made a date, as he recalls, to go to one, where she wins another. She has a knack for it. Whereupon they're in her apartment again, taking their clothes off, she excitedly cuddling her new doll in a bed heaped with them. He can't remember when he last slept, and he's no longer sure, as he staggers through the night streets, still foggy, where his own apartment is, his orgasm, if he had one, already fading from memory. Maybe he should take her back to the carnival, he thinks, where she wins another Cupid doll. This is at least their second date, maybe their fourth, and this time they go for a romantic nightcap at the bar where they first met, where a brawny dude starts hassling her. He intervenes, and she turns up at his hospital bed, bringing him one of her Cupid dolls to keep him company, which is her way of expressing the bond between them, or so he supposes, as he leaves the hospital on crutches, uncertain what part of town he's in, or what part of the year. He decides that it's time to call the affair off. She's driving him crazy. But then the brawny dude turns up at their wedding and apologizes for the pounding he gave him. He didn't realize, he says, how serious they were. The guy's wedding present is a gift certificate for two free drinks at the bar where they met and a pair of white satin ribbons for his crutches. During the ceremony, they both carry Cupid dolls that probably have some barely hidden significance and indeed do. The child she bears him, his or another's, reminds him, as if he needed reminding, that time is fast moving on. He has responsibilities now, and he decides to check whether he still has the job that he had when he first met her. He does. His absence, if he has been absent, is not remarked on, but he is not congratulated on his marriage either, no doubt because, it comes back to him now, before he met his wife, he was engaged to one of his colleagues, and their co-workers had already thrown them an engagement party, so they must resent the money they spent on gifts. It's embarrassing, and the atmosphere is somewhat hostile, but he has a child in kindergarten and another on the way, so what can he do? Well, he still hasn't cashed in the gift certificate, so for one thing, what the hell, he can go for a beer. Two, in fact, and he can afford a third. There's a young woman sitting near him who looks like she's probably good in bed, but she's not his wife, and he has no desire to commit adultery, or so he tells himself, as he sits on the edge of her bed with his pants around his ankles. Is he taking them off or putting them on? 
He's not sure. But now he pulls them on and limps home, having left his beribboned crutches somewhere. On arrival, he finds all the Cupid dolls, which were put on a shelf when the babies started coming, now scattered about the apartment, beheaded and with their limbs amputated. One of the babies is crying, so while he warms up a bottle of milk on the stove, he goes into its room to give it a pacifier and discovers a note from his wife pinned to its pajamas, which says that she has gone off to the hospital to have another baby, and she'd better not find him here when she gets back, because if she does, she'll kill him. He believes her, so he's soon out on the streets again, wondering if he ever gave that bottle to the baby or if it's still boiling away on the stove. He passes the old neighborhood bar and is tempted but decides that he has had enough trouble for one lifetime and is about to walk on when he is stopped by that hulk who beat him up and who now gives him a cigar because he's just become a father and drags him into the bar for a celebratory drink, or rather several, he has lost count. The celebrations are already over, however, and the new father, who has married the same woman who threw him out, is crying in his beer about the miseries of married life and congratulating him on being well out of it, a lucky man. But he doesn't feel lucky, especially when he sees a young woman sitting near them who looks like she's probably good in bed and decides to suggest that they go to her place. But too late, she's already out the door with the guy who beat him up and stole his wife. So he has another beer, wondering where he's supposed to live now, and realizing, it's the bartender who so remarks while offering him another on the house, that life is short and brutal, and before he knows it, he'll be dead. He's right. After a few more beers and orgasms, some vaguely remembered, most not, one of his sons, now a race car driver and the president of the company he used to work for, comes to visit him on his deathbed and, apologizing for arriving so late, I went for a beer, Dad. Things happened. Says he's going to miss him, but it's probably for the best. For the best what? he asks. But his son is gone, if he was ever there in the first place. Well, you know, life, he says to the nurse, who has come to pull the sheet over his face and wheel him away. That was Joshua Ferris, reading Going for a Beer by Robert Coover. The story was published in The New Yorker in 2011. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there. So, Josh, there's, there's no way to talk about this story without talking about time and what Coover does with time. And you mentioned earlier that when you went back to it, you looked to see how he had managed to maneuver things in the way he did. What do you think is the trick here? Exclusion, basically. I mean, leaving a whole bunch out. He collapses events very quickly. You're learning about events before they even happened and then discovering that they've already happened as you're learning about them. Right. And then deciding that the details are unimportant, that it is the really large movements that are kind of pinned down by details, but nevertheless, 
nothing drags the narrative down. It's always a forward motion. Mm-hmm. By the time I asked him about the story and he said something to the effect of anticipation sometimes follows event. Mm-hmm. And that's what's constantly happening here. Mm-hmm. He's anticipating what's already happened. Mm-hmm. But structurally, how does he do that? I mean, we go along with it as readers. We don't stop and say, wait a second, you can't do that because this hasn't happened. This has already happened. How can he be thinking about it now? Yeah. Somehow he gets us on his side. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really a trick. I'm sure there are some readers out there who see it as a gimmick, but the thing that saves it, I think, from gimmickry is that it's concerned with the actual experience of of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not merely trying to be clever. It is recapturing the experience that I think everyone has of finding yourself already doing the thing that you did anticipate Mm -hmm. or that you thought about merely doing, and it feels as if time completely collapses and is eliminated between anticipation and action. At the beginning of the story, there are instances where thought kind of provokes action. Mm-hmm. He finds himself in the bar right around the time that he was thinking about having a beer, and then he orders a second one. Mm-hmm. So you can feel that the main character's desire for something is the thing that materializes the action, that materializes, that makes mm-hmm. it happen. Mm-hmm. That becomes increasingly less the case as time goes on. Right. So that it's almost as if as he ages, his agency becomes less and less because he's a husband and then he's a father and then he's a man who's old and dying. And agency just sort of goes away as the story progresses. Yeah, I mean, I found that actually the most disturbing thing about the story is that he really doesn't have any control over what's happening. And you wonder in a way why he is in such a fog. Do you think it's meant to be a portrait of the human condition and we're all this way? Or do you think there's something actually wrong with this guy? Well, he's doing quite a lot of drinking, you know? He I mean, is, yeah. When, when, <laughs> and the first time... But it's just beer. Says, yeah, it's just beer, <laughs> although there might be a shot or two that he's not... You know, there's a lot excluded in this story. <laughs> the first time that he says that he can't remember his orgasm, you know, you sort of feel like if you can't remember your orgasm, maybe you're making the wrong decisions in life. (laughs) So in the beginning here, it feels as if maybe he's not exactly living the most responsibly. I think that's in wild contrast to the last time that he can't remember his orgasms when he's sitting at the bar and he says, you know, something like a few more beers, a few more orgasms, some only vaguely remembered, if at all. You know, you get the sense that at that point, it's time and memory that is also making that, it difficult to remember. Also, that there's no pleasure in any yeah, event. Yeah, there's a kind of anhedonia that's set in. Yeah. But in the beginning here, I think that he's probably just living the life of a young bachelor. We learn later that he's probably engaged to a colleague around this time, but nevertheless. <laughs> we haven't to have forgotten. <laughs> yeah, he's entirely forgotten her, and he's sitting at the bar, and he's making some dubious decisions, and, and maybe that's why he can't remember all of this. But, you know, he is willing it into action. This is what I find so interesting. At the beginning of the story, he wills a lot of his life into being. Mm -hmm. And that willfulness gets abated over the course of the story for things that are quite out of his control. And then he dies, the ultimate thing that's out of your control. You talked earlier about exclusion and about the sort of lack of detail. And that Lack of detail, to me, makes the actual details really stand out. So we have a few details. We have his crutches and the ribbon on his crutches. And we have these Cupid dolls. Mm -hmm. What are those Cupid dolls doing? Well, they're doing some technical things, I think. I mean, they're really sort of letting you know 
what kind of state the character is in. I mean, my favorite moment with respect to the Cupid dolls is when he comes home and they've put them on the shelves to clear the way for the children and they've been taken down and amputated. So you know that the state of nature is wild again in the house because of the children. You know, they've also just slept with someone else at that point, yeah. right? Yeah. So the ho- yeah. So yeah. there's there's a little revenge fantasy there. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's some there are problems in the domestic sphere. Yeah. There are also just there are strange things, Cupid dolls. Yeah. I, I think I tend not to think about them because they freak me out. <laughs> well, they're meant to be little cupids. They're meant to be sort of cute little babies. And yeah. In fact, they're sort of grotesque, and they're associated with carnivals, right? So this yeah. this guy's life is a carnival ride. There's a cheapness about it. Yeah. And there's a cheapness here, too. I mean, his life, it's brutish and short. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a mean and nasty and mean. It's a mean life yeah. to some extent. Coover gives us that sort of tantalizing line where he says the Cupid dolls have some barely hidden significance, you know, carrying them on their wedding day. And you can't remember what the significance is, but it's all, almost like taunting us. Come on, tell me what the significance yeah. is, right? Yeah. So you feel that you have to figure it out. You know, to some extent, it seems a little closed. The narrative seems a little closed. I got pretty deep with this one in that it reminded me of the, there's a book called Mimesis by Eric Auerbach. And in Auerbach's book, there's this distinction between like the epic tales of Homer and the Bible and the rhetorical differences that take place there. And in the epics, there is no detail that is left mm-hmm. in darkness. It's Everything is sort of fully explained. And, and in the Bible, everything is kind of clipped and it's much more cryptic. And I felt like there was so much meaning in this story that was cryptic and so many things that were left out that it read almost like a kind of biblical fable, mm-hmm. you know, of somebody who does not reach mythical proportion or does anything great in his life in the way that typically the Bible showcases. But a character whose life was incomplete and to some extent in darkness. Do you think that that crypticness is an invitation to interpret or you think it's just we're meant to take this as a kind of sealed I think you can narrative. interpret, but I think your interpretation is going to be limited. I mean, you asked at the beginning what I liked about the story. The only answer really is that energy that comes mm-hmm. across, mm-hmm. the vibrancy and vitality of the story as it is sort of exhausted, as it exhausts itself, the formal conceit taken to its logical extremes. When I go back to try to dig more meaning out of it, I bump up against so much that is left out. Your question, for example, is this the human condition or is there something special about him? You know, those kind of things, I'm not sure I can arrive at a satisfactory answer for myself. I I keep butting up against these unanswerable questions. One thing, the story, I mean, you talk about the story's energy. When I read it, I experience deep anxiety. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I don't blame you. It's, I don't blame it, you. it has energy, but at the same time, you just keep wanting to say, no, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't, no, don't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's already happened, right? Yeah, so, it's a, yeah before you can stop them, it's already right. happened. Yeah. At the same time, I think there's this very sort of pervasive cynicism or nihilism to this story, this kind of portrait of life as a stream of beers and orgasms you can't remember. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a strain of it. I mean, it does make me anxious, too. It makes me anxious because I don't want to be this man. Yeah. And when you're reading along and you're very close to his thoughts, you're sort of, you know, I mean, I think 
when you're reading, you're participating in an active way. So here I am, this guy, and he's always at the bar and he's having affairs and he's not living correctly. And it's very upsetting. And you're going along and barreling along. And then at the end, he's dead. Yeah. It's as life is described in the story of being short and brutal. That's what the, the story is. It just doesn't give you a lot to hold on to. I but it's, you know, it's a funny story. It's a it very funny. funny story. And I think that the internal humor there is a mitigating factor for all this pessimism. Yeah. I mean, do you think that the humor is mitigating or do you think it actually kind of buys up the pessimism because really things are so bad? <laughs> All you can do is laugh. Yeah, it's a train wreck. Yeah. Coover was in his, I think, in his late 70s when he wrote this. And I asked him if he thought all lives could be kind of compacted in this way. And he said, yes, basically every life could be shrunk down to a few words. And you find yourself on your deathbed saying, where did the time go? Mm. How did I get here so fast? Mm. So I think in some ways he is trying to sort of look at a universal truth about life, which is we don't see it passing and then it's gone. Yeah, and, sure. and I guess there's a moral to the story. Remember your beers. Remember yeah. your orgasms. Yeah. <laughs> Stop and smell the roses. Yeah, pay right? attention. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Be present. <laughs> now, in your own fiction, you sometimes play around with time in not exactly this way, but in similar ways. I'm thinking of your story, The Breeze, that uh, ran in the magazine a couple of years ago, where you had the same night told in many different ways, sort of yeah. simultaneously, the same evening. Do you think Hoover was an influence on you and how you look at time in fiction? Or I read a lot of him and his group when I was in college. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that, you know, they failed to leave a mark. It's strong stuff. And the willingness, I think, of the metafictionalists to dispatch any and every element of traditional fiction was a kind of gauntlet, you know? I mean, they said, what do you need to make a good story? What do you need to make an effective narrative? Time was always one of the things that was up for debate. I don't sit down and think, how is Coover going to come out today? But, <laughs> you know, I mean, they, those guys were important to me. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I remember reading about Barthelme mm -hmm. was that he had tremendous envy of painting because you could stand before a painting and take it all in. It was complete. Mm -hmm. And what I really like about this story is because of its brevity, and because of its, the breadth of its subject, you almost get a kind of painterly effect. Like you really get it like almost all at once, a whole man's life all at once. And it's another thing that I really admire about the story is everything that is contained at almost only a glance. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Joshua Ferris is the author of three novels, Then We Came to the End, The Unnamed, and To Rise Again at a Decent Hour. You can download 95 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store, including one in which Joshua Ferris reads George Saunders' story, Adams. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>